have you ever felt nervous when you're launching something new? You've come up with an idea, you want to start a blog, launch a podcast, build a business and put it out into the world, but you feel nervous. Why me? Why should it be me? What if people don't like it? What if they say this? What if that happens? And the nerves start to come. Some of the most brilliant ideas in the world have never been launched because people are scared. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur, and we're going to be talking about firing the haters. The extraordinary belongs to those that create it. Rebelling against business plans and debt, rebelling against what society expects of us to build cool businesses, make money, have fun and do good. Let's create something extraordinary together. Welcome to The Rebel Entrepreneur. And I'm very excited about today's episode. I have one of my friends with me, Gillian. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is going to be awesome. I've been looking forward to this. You're just about to launch a brand new book called Fire the Haters. And I've been really looking forward to reading it, which it is on my list of items to read. But I think this is a really important subject for the audience and actually for me personally, we've had three or four of the coaching series have come out on my show now, and every single one, we end up speaking about imposter syndrome. We end up speaking about the fear of putting something online, putting it out into the world, and being judged. And what if they find out it's just little old me, and why should I be doing this? And this is something that every entrepreneur wrestles with. So have you ever wrestled with the fear of putting something out there? Because you've got a podcast, you've got a blog, you create resources, you're putting a book out there. Have you wrestled with this? This is, there's a quote, like, you should write the book you need to read. (laughs) This is the book I needed to read. Uh, When I started, sometimes daily, I just go back and reread it. Um, I'm sure in five years, you know, something else will happen and I'll be like, someone will text me like, remember when you said this in your book, you should go reread that chapter. (laughs) Because it was born out of not just my experience, but... All of my coaching clients, all of my entrepreneur friends, it was born out of hundreds of conversations like, this is the thick of it. This is something we're all dealing with. And when I looked out in the world at people who had been successful and had kind of learned to navigate this, the interesting thing was they all ended up in kind of the same spot. They all thought about it the same way. They all had kind of landed on very similar conclusions but there was no resource to kind of like help us fast track it, help us like get through all of that heartache and pain and anxiety and hesitation to land in this better spot. So I thought, what if I could just pool together all this collective wisdom born out of hundreds of conversations and make like a very easy to read little guidebook? I love that. So let's start with a real life example, because mm-hmm. I always think that's great. I first went on Brad and Jonathan's podcast, Choose FI, and I did five ways to build a business with no debt. And I put out my best content, my ideas of how to launch your business. And then someone on Reddit said it was nothing but an hour's advert for his course. It was a complete waste of time. There was no value. And 
That was like a knife through the heart. Like, this is my best content. What do you mean there's no value? <laughs> I've just shown you five ways to build a business with no debt. And I, I, I just, I feel like crawling back into my cave and not coming out again because the world can be quite mean and I'm doing my best. How do you deal with something like that? In, in the first, I broke the book into three sections. So in the first section of the book, we kind of deal with the different types of haters out there, but also this idea that we have to have emotional boundaries with our work. So a lot of times, especially when our work is born out of our ideas and our personality and our experience and our skill set and our stories, it feels a little bit like an extension of us that we're sending out into the world, like a little bit of our heart, a little bit of our soul that we're shipping out into the world. So when it gets attacked, we feel attacked. This is personal, baby. This is personal. You're attacking me and my thoughts and my ideas. Yes. So a lot of people will talk about their work as as their baby or as their child. And if someone's attacking your baby, like you should defend a baby because it's helpless. But I think about our work when we ship it, that means it's full grown. It's an adult. It's moving out of the house. Bon voyage. Have a great life. And it's going to go out there and do its job. It's going gonna, it's gonna to do the work that it was designed to do, like a grown child. And just like with grown children, you can't helicopter them. You can't show up at their place of work and be like, is everyone being nice to my kid? Wait, don't ask them that question. You need to, you need to use nicer words to them. Like you, you have to give them space to create a ruckus. And to whatever they were designed to do, if they were designed to stir things up, you got to let them stir things up out there. And having kind of those emotional boundaries that people are going to interact with your work in all different ways, but it's out there. It's grown. It's fine. It's safe. Like it can go do its job without it being you. It's really interesting that particular piece of you've put it out there. I've never thought about it like that because. When I was attacked on Reddit, I'd been delivering that course for many years and I knew the content worked. I know it works. I know it's incredibly powerful. And generally the people who go, there's no value here, are just looking for excuses not to try or there's another reason behind it. And it's nothing to do with me. But that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt still. I just have got to a stage where I'm like, well, that's probably their problem. It's not to do with me. So how do you set these emotional boundaries so that you feel comfortable going into the world because I struggle with that I really do I put my heart and soul into what I do and then someone tells you you're rubbish and it it hurts I'm not sure I've learned this lesson yet Gillian yeah it takes a long time to learn and every time we encounter it again we're like oh looks like we have more work to do But it's helpful to start with like the right mental premise. And like I mentioned before, the first one is that your work isn't you. It lives separately from you. It has its own life from you. It's out there around the globe 24 hours a day doing its thing. And, you know, whoever's listening to this podcast right now, this is a piece of my work. And you might be listening to it a month from now, a year from now. I'm not actually there. I'm chilling at home in Montana. I'm drinking tea. (laughs) Like it's living a life separately from me. Mm -hmm. Um, So if someone's angry at my work or disappointed, and that's the other thing, your work doesn't have to be for everyone. 
And you can't, you can try to convince someone to try the thing that you've made. But as creatives, as entrepreneurs, as business owners, we get absolutely zero say in how they feel about our work. We can convince them to try it, just marketing, but how they feel, they're going to feel however they want to feel. They're going to think whatever they want to think. They're going to assume whatever they want to assume. And we don't get any say in that. And so to try to micromanage other people's experience after the fact, it's like if you go to a movie and you're like, I don't really like it. Nobody's going to convince you that you do actually, in fact, like it. (laughs) You read a book, you're going to like it or you're not going to like it. But like as the author, after you read my book, if you don't like it, that's really none of my business. Like I can't convince you or manipulate you to feeling and thinking something different. That wasn't my intention. But our work is separate from us and it does its own thing. We can't always micromanage other people's feelings and emotions or assumptions. Yes, we have no reaction. (laughs) We have no way of controlling their reaction. You just do what you do. You hope the best. I have learned over the years that the way I put out my content will directly affect the way they respond to it. So I can tweak my style to get a different reaction and different response. And I've got better at doing that. But that's never 100% successful. There's always someone who goes, I don't like what you do. That's it. Yes. And some of it, some of it's honest, you know, in that we're not for everybody and that's okay. Tastes vary, styles vary. But in the book, I also outline like specific kinds of haters because sometimes it's helpful when someone's really nasty online. It's helpful to understand like what's driving this bizarre, mean behavior. So I I create kind of like little profiles and little almost like characters of these people online so that when you encounter them, instead of feeling like it's so personal, you can just go, oh, sweetie, I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry, you're you. And then this is like just how you move through the world. Like, that must be rough. But this actually has nothing to do with me or my work. Yes, it has absolutely nothing to do with that. So like, if someone's new and launching their business, what advice do you give to them? If they're nervous, if they're feeling like they're an imposter, how do you develop the courage just to launch it? What do you say to someone who's just about to launch and just wants to get out there? Well, I think it depends, you know, what what particular kind of hesitation they have. I Imposter syndrome is one of my favorite topics. I wrote a whole chapter in the book about it because I love it so much because I think we think about it incorrectly. And I compare it to going to the gym. If you've never exercised, if you've never exerted yourself at all, and you show up at this foreign place that is a gym and you start exercising and then like water starts coming out of your body and you go, oh, this is horrible. What is happening? Like I, there's like liquid coming from my forehead and I'm, is this sweat? I don't know what this is. Like I must be doing something wrong. I shouldn't be here. This has obviously gone horrible. I need to leave and never do this again. Instead of realizing, actually, you're doing exactly what you need to do to get the results you need to get. Imposter syndrome is like sweating when you're exercising. It's a sign that you're doing something right. The only time people feel imposter syndrome is when they're trying, when they care, and when they're showing up as a professional. If you're a hobbyist, (laughs) I, I watercolor paint. 
Saturday mornings, I've never shared it online. I don't ship it. I'm not a professional. I'm a hobbyist. Do I care that I suck? No, because I'm a hobbyist. I'm not showing up as a professional. (laughs) I'm not saying I'm good at this. I'm not saying this has any value. I'm just like killing an hour on my Saturday morning. But if you feel imposter syndrome, it means that you're stretching yourself, that you're trying, that you're growing, that you're, you're shipping your work and you're showing up as a professional. If you feel imposter syndrome, it means you're doing exactly what you need to do to get where you need to go. That's interesting. That's a different way to look at it. Like imposter syndrome means you're, you're doing what you need to do. And one of the things I say regularly on the podcast is everything you want in life is outside your comfort zone. Otherwise, you'd already have it. And imposter syndrome is a lack of comfort. And the way I've got used to this, I still get nervous every now and again before presentations. It still happens, even though I've been doing it for 15 years. The way I've justified it in my head is that if I wasn't nervous, it shows I don't care. And because I care about the results and I care about the people I'm seeing to, I will feel some kind of nerves that it's like, I want this to go well, I want this to go well. And I love that trying, caring or showing up as a professional. The care one is definitely me. If you've never experienced imposter syndrome in your entrepreneurial or creative life, I would bet either you have boatloads of unearned confidence which can be disastrous because the world will quickly prove that this is unearned. Like you should not be this confident. Or you just never really tried. You've never stretched yourself. You've never stepped outside your comfort zone and still tried to show up like a professional. I would say that's a more risky proposition than than constantly feeling imposter syndrome. You know, every time you step into a new project or a new thing or or you go a little bit farther in your work. You should feel it. You should sweat at the gym. Like it's it's a sign you're doing something right. <laughs> I've been doing it wrong all these years. <laughs> so are you saying that there's not a way to eliminate this feeling? Should we even be trying to reduce it or should we just embrace it and celebrate that we feel a bit nervous and feel bad and then just push through it? Because I get I guess there's a scale of it. For some people, this is so bad it's debilitating. And for other people, we've learned to go, well, okay, like it doesn't feel nice, but I'm going to push forwards because I know the stuff that I want is on the other side. A lot of what makes it debilitating is the story behind it, is the story of why we're feeling this. If you're feeling imposter syndrome and it's debilitating, it's because you think, if I feel this way, I shouldn't be here. This is a sign that I shouldn't be doing this work. This is a sign that I've done something horribly wrong with my life. So a lot of the things in the book I outline are, it's more a different way of looking at it, a different perspective, a more helpful perspective. And like I said, people who've been in this a long time, they've all kind of landed in a very similar spot. Like we just have to tell ourselves a different story because there is a story that's extremely unhelpful and that will sink your ship. You know, like the story that you are your work. (laughs) It is an extension of yourself. That doesn't work. It, it's not it's not helpful. It's not useful. Like that's just a recipe for you being neurotic and a mess all the time. <laughs> so some of it's the way we look at things. You know, for beginners, like you kind of brought up this idea of that fear that we're not the most experty expert. Who am I to show up? Is there space for me? If I'm like not the best, 
And what a lot of people tell us is to try to convince ourselves that we are the best, that we are good enough, that we are qualified enough. And I kind of take the opposite approach in that you don't have to be the best. The best is one person. And there's a much larger market in the world than work for one person. (laughs) And sometimes, even though you're not the best, let's say you're a graphic designer and you know amazing graphic designers, like you got into this because you have good taste and you see all these fantastic graphic designers and they are legitimately better than you on every, they're more skilled, they're more talented, they have more experience, they have more credentials. Like, who am I to do this? The reality is you don't have to be the best to be the very best option for a customer. Your price, your availability, your style might be the perfect fit for someone. And it's having that confidence to say, you know, I don't have to be the very best to do this. Like I can still be useful. I can still be valuable. I can still show up and be the best fit for somebody. That's an interesting thought. And I've never thought about it like this, but we have people who come to our courses and they start like cleaning businesses. And I've never had a single person launching a cleaning business say, I've got imposter syndrome. I need to be the best cleaner to be able to launch this business. Other people who make those kitchens a little bit more sparkly than I do, I'm not sure I should do this. What have I got to add? They just go out and they do the work and people are grateful that they've cleaned their houses and it looks good. Actually, some of the cleaners I've hired in the past, they don't even do that. They just kind of like, but anyway, that's a different subject. But it's really interesting. There are some businesses that don't really suffer from that. People just go and do what they do because it is the thing. But there are other businesses that suffer incredibly from it. And I remember I was doing the coaching series. There was a lady called Jamie who was the artist. And she said to me, oh, it's different for artists because it's literally your creation. Like it's worse for an artist than it is for an entrepreneur. What's your thoughts on, does this affect different types of businesses, genres, people more than others? Should it, or should we all just get over it? I don't think it should, but it does. And, and there's some, there's some reasons behind that. It is difficult when it could be creative work, but often our entrepreneurial work is, is born out of our stories and our personality and our perspective and our taste. And so it feels more like an extension of us, which makes it more difficult than like a cleaning business. Maybe doesn't feel like an extension of you as much. The other thing that's challenging is this idea that in some certain things, there's like not a uniform standard. So to clean a house, you can say, here's kind of the standard. If I can meet that standard, that's good enough. But in other projects, if you're giving a talk, if you're writing a book, if you're leading a course, what's good enough? Where's where's that hard line of I met this threshold, so it's acceptable? You know, I've I've read, I started reading a book a week about 15 years ago. So I've read about a thousand books. Wow. It's really tough to write a book when you've read a thousand of them. Because is my book going to be better than the thousand books I've read? Nope. (laughs) It just can't. Like, especially not your first book. So is it good enough? Like, what, where exactly does it have to stack in that thousand for me to be like, this is acceptable? This is shippable. This is, this is good enough. So instead, of saying like, is it perfect? I asked myself, is it going to be helpful? 
is this book going to be helpful for people? And that I could 100% with all confidence say, this is helpful. This is useful. This is going to make an impact. Is it perfect? No. Is it the best? No. Is it helpful? Absolutely. See, people will stop releasing anything because they don't think it's the best. It's like, well, I can't put it out there. It's not the best. It's not perfect yet. It's not ready. It's not done. You would not believe the countless thousands of people who speak to me and say, well, it's not ready yet. My, my business partner, Simon, has this thing. So we're doing like website Wednesday at the course. Everyone's there, laptops out, building websites. And people will say to him, oh, is it done? You know, what do you think? And he'll have a look at it and make some suggestions. And then he'll distract them and say, hey, look over there. And then when he does that, he just reaches in and presses publish. Yeah. <laughs> launches their website for them. He's like, it will never be done. Just press publish. But give us some tools and techniques because I guarantee, well, if you're listening to this, are you a perfectionist? <laughs> this is the section for you. Gillian, how do we overcome perfectionism? You know, I one of the chapters in the book, I talk about this Ira Glass quote that we get into our work, whatever work it is, because we have really good taste. Whether you're a musician or an artist or a cook or a web designer, like you have good taste. And that's why you started on this path. But the challenge is that when you're starting, your work doesn't meet your taste. You can't produce the work at the same quality as your taste is. And it's incredibly frustrating. You know, when I, oh my gosh, when I started my podcast, so we had planned this for six months. As you know, it's like a long process to get all the pieces together, all the interviews lined up. I had prepped. I flew to Richmond. I recorded 22 episodes in a week. It was like a marathon. <laughs> and I, I'm a preparer. I am like, very much a perfectionist. I had put so much work into this week. And I I left just exhausted, but that really good kind of exhausted of knowing that I'd given my very best, that I had shown up exactly how I wanted to show up. And that like I had done, I had done the work. And I'm driving home or I'm driving to the airport in DC. And I pop on a podcast and it's between Elizabeth Gilbert, who wrote Big Magic, Short Eat Pray Love and Rob Bell, who's also a writer. And it's brilliant. It's sparkling. It's funny. It's energizing. And I just started sobbing in my car because I realized two things. One, those first 22 episodes I recorded are shit. Two, they were the very best I had in me. And the only way that I was going to get better was to keep showing up and producing work that did not match my taste. Keep showing up and producing things that were stilted or just didn't, they weren't as brilliant and sparkling and hilarious as this interview I just heard. And that's the deal. Skill is like dry stacking a stone wall. You know where the top of the wall should be. But with every stone you stack, it falls short until the very last one. And, and the people who get good at this, the people who stay in the game, are the people who just develop some sort of like mindset where they're like, I, I just have to get through this mediocrity. I just have to keep 
stacking stones that fall short of my expectation and stacking another stone that falls short of my expectation and stacking another stone that falls short because that's the game. Nobody like I played basketball in high school and before I before I started playing basketball, I dreamed about it. Like I obsessed about it. It was such a big thing in my in my small town. Like women's basketball was just huge. Uh, and they were like my idols. Do I know if I'm good at basketball before I start? No. And are you the very best the first time you touch a basketball? No. It just, like, that's the game. That's the thing we signed up for is that, you know, skill is developed through consistency. One of the chapters in my book is confidence and clarity come in doing. If you don't feel 100% confident, good. You shouldn't be because you haven't done this for 30 <laughs> years. Like You have to do the thing lots and lots of time to develop confidence. And if, you're, if you don't have clarity, if you're like, oh, I'm not sure if I should be doing this. I'm not sure if this is the right thing. I'm not sure. Yeah, you shouldn't be sure. You can't be sure because you haven't done the thing yet. You have to do the thing a whole bunch. And in the process of doing it, you become more confident. You gain more clarity. But those things are earned through action. You cannot manifest this sitting on your couch in your living room. <laughs> which I think ties perfectly into the principle that we have on The Rebel Entrepreneur, which is don't start a business with debt because your first business probably won't go that well. Version one is never that good. Let's be honest. Version one of anything is never going to be as good as version 45 or version 52 when you've been doing it for a while. And your first business is probably not going to be the one that makes you a million. So let's build it without debt. Let's make it go. And Simon and I have with this expression we talk about at Rebel Business School, which is, if you're going to fail, fail fast and fail cheap. And the fail cheap bit is our bit, because you're probably going to fail and that's okay. Like you're going to have to get through failure. Just don't do it with a huge amount of debt because the traditional way to start a business, you write a business plan for weeks. You work on your product for months. You get everything perfect. You take a big loan. You go deeply into debt. You spend months and months and months. And if it goes wrong, that point when you're six months and a hundred grand in, that's failing slowly and failing expensively. I've seen it and I just, it rips me up inside when the people come. You had a guy come to our course and he's telling me about his website and he was doing a dating website and first three days he wouldn't tell me until I signed an NDA, <laughs> which is like, as soon as someone it's says a bad that, sign. <laughs> I know my heart sinks and I go, oh no, no. oh no. <laughs> I just felt so, I wanted to help. His, his innovation was the women that signed up for the dating service would be given a watch for signing up. Oh. And for those of you who can't hear Gillian's face, <laughs> Gillian's face is saying, I'm not sure I get this. Uh, and I think I had exactly the same reaction. And then we were talking about it. He showed me his website and he was £65,000 into building this thing. 65 grand. It's like $100,000. And I just, I was ripped up inside. I wanted to help. I wanted to help. So I guess our thought, and I'd love to know your thoughts based on this, is the first couple aren't probably going to go perfectly. Let's get them out of the way quickly and cheaply and then get onto the good stuff later. What are your thoughts on failure 
does failure even exist? Like, how does it fit into this world of online creation and entrepreneurship and putting things out there? Yeah, you're going to, here's the thing, you can't succeed by every single metric. So you have to measure what metrics matter to you. And usually there's behind the scenes, there could be 20 different metrics that are going on. But oftentimes people only care about one at the expense of the other 19. It's like if someone says, hey, Alan, how's, uh, how's your diet going? Uh-oh. They're asking That's- about one metric. <laughs> Uh-oh. They're only Julie. asking. Did you pick you on that because you can see my face after being in? <laughs> it's it's all of our conversation. I've had of too tacos. many pancakes. <laughs> no, um, but they're only asking about that one metric. Are they are they actually asking? Have you learned to eat more vegetables? Have you found like an exercise you enjoy doing? Are you getting more comfortable with a scale? Are you drinking more water? Are you sleeping? They don't care about any of that. They care about one metric. And the trouble with that is that there's a lot of really unhealthy ways that you can game that one metric. Yes. You could just drink very unhealthy. lemon juice and like cayenne pepper for two weeks and game that one metric and not actually become healthier. So when we're looking at our business and our entrepreneurship, there's a lot of metrics that we can measure. But if the only one you care about is like, did I, did I earn money? Money comes and money goes. You earn money, you lose money. Like it's not that outcome isn't always the whole story. There's a lot of things happening behind the scenes. So like when I started six years ago, I decided the two metrics that I was going to focus on because one, I felt like I had more control on on them. And two, I felt like these two metrics were going to be essential to my long-term success. And that was my personal growth, my personal and professional growth. Am I learning? Am I growing as a creative, as an entrepreneur, as a human? Am I getting better? And the second one was relationships. Am I improving the quantity and the quality and the depth of my professional relationships? Because win or lose, good metrics, bad metrics, six years later, every success I've had has been built on my relationships that I built, and the growth that I've experienced personally and professionally. Those were essential elements to something eventually working. So I think if you focus on one metric like page views or social media following, you can crash and burn. Like It comes, it goes, and you don't get to carry that forward. You don't get to carry your page views into your third project. So having something to anchor yourself in that you can control and that actually matters to your long-term success. I find that really fascinating. I love the two metrics you have. For some time, I've been discovering that profit is actually a side effect of a well-run business that helps people, delivers value, the sales machine is running. The side effect is the profit if we get the machine running well. And I love the two metrics you've got. I do find it interesting, and I'd love to know how you would react to this. I had a moment a couple of weeks ago. I sent out an email to my mailing list. I have a small mailing list of people, about 2,500 that follow my blog and the podcast and bits, and I sent out a, a mailing list. I had 11 unsubscribes. And I looked at the 11 unsubscribes. And now I know this is not rational, okay? So don't <laughs> judge me too harshly. I felt down, like... 
I've just sent you an email with huge value with the latest blog post that I wrote to help you do this with this with this and you've unsubscribed and I'm like what have I done what have I done wrong what have I done badly and I actually felt down for about an hour then I managed to shake myself out with it going what are you what are you doing like why are you letting an hour of your life be ruined but how do you react because sometimes metrics go the wrong way even if you've put your heart and soul into it how do you react and I know I'm daft but help me <laughs> you know when when people leave voluntarily that's like it sounds weird but that's kind of the best case scenario for people leaving is they realized on their own this isn't for me i'm not the right person this doesn't match my style or my taste and they realize this and they opt out it's much more expensive and much more difficult and much more painful if the people who you're not creating work for stick around they're the ones who will criticize you. <laughs> they're the ones who will be haters. They're the ones who will waste your time and waste your energy and try to pull you in a hundred directions. Those are the people you have to block. Those are the people you have to remove from Facebook groups. Those are the people that I have to go in and manually unsubscribe them from my email list because somehow <laughs> they didn't ever figure it out on their own that they shouldn't be here. They don't belong in this group. And so when people discover this for themselves and they show themselves to the door, I'm eternally grateful because it is so much more expensive and painful and unpleasant for like if I have to show them to the door for them. I also think about it, it's like creating space for the people that your work is for. You know, like if you if you've ever been at like a party or given a talk or an event and there's like four people who shouldn't be in the room. And it just changes the energy of the whole thing. And if you could just take those four people out and put four like awesome, excited, like eager, I'm totally into this people into the room, like it makes the whole thing better. It so when I see everything. people leave, unsubscribe or unfollow, I just think, thanks for giving it a try. I appreciate the <laughs> fact that like you gave it a try. And I appreciate the fact that you figured out this isn't for you and left. So I didn't have to like figure it out and kick you out. So I think it's just kind of that, I don't know, that perspective that's, that's helpful for me. It's interesting. Very interesting. I, suddenly this has turned into personal coaching for Alan <laughs> because he's got some mental demons to go on. But I genuinely think this will help everyone out there because we've all had the same thing. When you send the email and you get rejected, when you make the phone call and you get rejected, sometimes it can be quite painful. And I guess... Sometimes, Gillian, I intellectually know the answer, but it doesn't stop me feeling rubbish. It doesn't stop me feeling in turmoil, distressed and bad. There's a difference between knowing these things intellectually and understanding it at a deeper gut level that it doesn't affect you anymore because you really understand that. How do I shift myself from intellectually, I know it's nothing to do with me, these commenters. Intellectually, I know people rejecting me, it's nothing to do with me. Well, sometimes it is to do with me because like, I've just not delivered it well or whatever it is. How do I go from intellectually? How do people listening to this go from knowing intellectually to knowing at a deeper level and being able to actually deal with it and to not let it take down my day? So two 
The easy answer and the hard answer. <laughs> the hard answer, <laughs> it takes practice. And it Ugh. takes grounding yourself. I know. Sucky. Practice. Boo. Let's move on Boo. to the easy answer. <laughs> no. I think it's important for us all to hear this because the practice can be quite painful. I guess like it's like when you go to martial arts for the first time and you're practicing and someone good comes along and throws you over and it hurts. You're practicing to get better. Like it hurts getting rejected. And it, it does get better over time. I recently had a tweet that kind of went viral. Uh, and it was the first time this had happened to me on Twitter, where over half of the people who retweeted were angry and disagreeing with me. <laughs> like it Whoa. was like a lot of angry retweeting. What did you um, say? So in the personal finance space, I did a cash out refi on my house and I invested the money. And people had some really big feelings about this. Mm, like Because the market's <laughs> already overinflated. And, yeah. Well, I just took a paid off house and like added debt to my life, essentially. And people were just aghast. But at this point, you know, and I, I talk about it in the book too, not everyone has to understand. Like that's not the goal for everyone to perfectly understand. I could, I could write a hundred thousand. I could write a million words about my life. And people can't perfectly understand. So that can't be the goal. Not everyone's going to agree. And that's fine too. I don't need everyone to agree because you know what? It's my life. And maybe this isn't the right thing for you. And so we don't, we, we're not living identical lives. You can do you what you want in your life. This is my life. And the other fact that like people are going to make wrong assumptions because they don't have all the details. And that's fine. I'm not going to give people every detail because I can't. So if they make an incorrect assumption, that's not my job to fix that. It's not my job to micromanage that. It's not my job to go back and like give them a whole bunch more information about my life. Like it's fine if they just make a wrong assumption. But it takes and I didn't actually I didn't even care. I was like whatever. And it got me like two news stories cuz it went so viral. So I'm like, okay, controversy, cool, whatever. So that's the hard answer. The easy answer is that and I wrote a whole chapter about this in the book too, is if there's something that can sink your ship, create a wide circle around it. Like we don't have to fight every fight. We don't have to engage in the things that feel the most difficult and the most vulnerable every time. And this looks a lot of different ways. I open, open the book by sharing a story that would just, I'd only been writing a few months and one of my articles, I submitted it to this big curation site and they picked it up and I was so excited. And you always feel like, and this is the thing. This is the big break I've been waiting for. But what I didn't realize was that curation sites change the titles of your article. Titles, news articles, any titles are almost never written by the author. They're written by the editor. And they pick things that are catchier and more inflammatory and more clickbaity. And they picked a very triggering headline, one that shamed people. And people read that and they went directly to the comment section and unloaded on me, this Whoa. unknown author. And I was a mess. I wasn't eating and then I was binge eating and I wasn't sleeping and I was trying to fight people in the comments and I was like thinking of all the rebuttals, like I did everything wrong. I was awake in the middle of the night just obsessing about this and I thought, I'm not cut out for this. This creative life, I thought this was like an incredibly safe pursuit. I'm not cut out for this. And I emailed one of my very first blogging friends, Jay Money. I said, Jay Money, here's what's happening. I don't, I don't know if I can be a writer. Like, how do you deal with this? And he went, well, sweetie, 
You never read the comments. <laughs> Full stop. That's it. He's like, if I have something posted on a new site, I never read the comments. You don't even don't even open it. And I was like, that's an option. <laughs> you could just do that. You could just like not read them. Oh my gosh. So it almost I almost gave up my whole creative entrepreneurial career because of one stupid article. Because I didn't know you just don't have to read the comments. So like even with um, unsubscribes, because I have I have a medium size of about a 10,000 person email list. So I get 40, 50 unsubscribes every every newsletter, just standard. I write my email in Grammarly before I open it, before I open ConvertKit to publish the email. Because it's a bummer. It's a bummer to see, oh, 40 people decided, you know, they don't like my work. So I don't want that to impact my creative work and my energy. I don't want the people that my work isn't for to diminish my work for the people that it is for. So I write it separately and then I open it up and I go, oh, there's some unsubscribes that I've already written this thing with all my help, like positive, upbeat, exciting, cool idea energy. And then I just hit publish and I close it out. So creating a wide circle around things that you're like, oh, this would wreck me. This would be hard. Whether it's don't read the comments or write before you see the unsubscribes or have someone else send it. You can write it. You don't have to look at that. You know, and and a lot of people develop these these rules around the things they create to keep them safe and healthy and productive and happy. One of the first articles we were in about financial independence was, here, check out these people who are trying to retire by 40. And we were the picture at the front. And for about two days, it really hurt reading the comments. And then I did actually discover a trick to being able to read the comments and feel okay. And what I did was, we were, I was with a couple of American friends. We sat around and I read the comments in overly posh British accent. <laughs> And then they just laughed like you wouldn't believe. And then I felt okay about it. So now whenever I have to read this stuff, I do it in like a funny accent. And it almost takes away all of the author's power over me. Like they just can't get me when I say it in a stupid accent. It's like I laugh at them and like, I don't care what you say. So that one's helped me massively. I think this is an incredibly valuable episode for the people listening. Read the book. I'm going to read the book. Let's read the book, Fire the Haters. I think it's a fantastic title. And the line that comes afterwards, finding the courage to create online in a critical world. The world is critical. You will be criticized. We love to compare. We love to judge. That is going to happen to every business you launch. It's just going to happen. What's your final advice for the audience, Gillian, on how to deal with this stuff to get that idea out into the world? I would take an honest look at what is the hesitation? What is that story that you're telling yourself? And is it a helpful story? Is it even a true story? Because there's a lot of different ways to look at a story. There's a lot of different ways to tell a story. And, and the story you're telling yourself just might not be helpful or useful at all. And so you need to kind of rejig it. And there's hundreds of thousands, millions of people who figured this stuff out. And they've, for the most part, like they've set up different systems and processes, but largely they told themselves a different story about what it means. Because the tricky part with online life is that it doesn't follow the same rules as in-person life. People don't have to abide by those rules. Like I would never say the stuff some people have said online face-to-face, -face, like you just couldn't. 
Yes. Yes. And in person, if someone said something that was incorrect or they made a wrong assumption, like you would defend it. You would explain. You would like add to that conversation where that's like the opposite of what you should do online. Like just let people misunderstand. You know, I, one of my phrases in the book is like, give yourself the gift of being misunderstood. Not everybody has to get you. Not everyone has to understand you. Not everyone has to understand what you're doing or why it's important. You know, and I talk about this a little bit with in the friends and family section too. The reason you got into this, like we talked about, is because you have great taste, but you also have a vision. You specifically have been given a vision for this entrepreneurial work, for this creative work. You see how things can be different or better or the need that isn't being met. But that vision is specific to you. So just because other people don't have the same vision you have doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. They weren't given that gift. And like we can't fault them for that. We just have to get it out there. Jillian, your energy, your smile, your advice has been hugely valuable. If the rebel entrepreneurs who are out there building businesses want to find out more, you've got a podcast, a blog, a book, like yeah, do everything. Where do they go? What the do things. they do? JillianJohnsrud.com. J-I-L-L-I-A-N-J-O-H-N-S-R-U-D. Yep. And the book is available everywhere. Yeah. And I think you should even be able to get like the audio for free at the library if you're like, I don't got the seven bucks for a Kindle Kindle book. It's out there. <laughs> but if you do have the seven bucks for the Kindle book or the five pounds or whatever it is, like people put a lot of work into writing books. Holy uh, schmolies. This was a it, project. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, I, I did not. I uh, underestimated the amount of time and energy and love and caring it would take to get this book into the world. <laughs> I thought, well, this is an easy, fun book. This shouldn't take too long. I love talking about this stuff. We already had 100 conversations. I'll just jot it all down. Nope. No. Uh, so do go listen to Jillian's podcast, get the book, check out the website. She's got some fabulous content. Please do check that out. And closing thought from me for the day, what's the wealthiest place on the planet? This is a question for me or for your audience? For everyone. Okay. You can answer though if you would like to, Jillian. No, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> it's the graveyard because that's where most ideas end up. People die with their ideas inside them because they're afraid of putting them out into the world because of perfectionism, because of imposter syndrome, because of all of the things that Gillian has just been speaking about. Do not let your ideas die inside you. Put them out into the world and celebrate that you've done something. You can have any life you want to. Choose to build something cool. Choose to take action. Choose to work to make your dreams become reality. Stand out. Be different. Be yourself. Be a rebel entrepreneur.